0: you're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: In an extremely unusual move, the Justice Department is trying to take over the defense of President Trump in a defamation suit brought by advice Columnist E. Jean Carroll, who claims Trump raped her two decades ago. Attorney General Bill Barr defended the actions of the Justice Department, claiming it was normal for justice to get involved because Trump denied Carroll's rape accusation and called her a liar as part of his official duties.
2: The little tempest that's going on is, is largely because uh, of the bizarre political environment in which we live.
1: Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Let's start with Carroll's lawsuit. It's a defamation lawsuit, but it's really about allegations of rape.
3: Yeah, that's correct. Um, Back in June last year, um, the well known New York Advice columnist, uh, Eugene Carroll, um, went public with allegations that uh, Trump, uh, back in the mid 90s, um, had allegedly raped her um, and forcefully, um, you know, attacked her in a dressing room at a Bergdorf Goodman department store in Manhattan when they had bumped into each other and they recognized each other um, and had had friendly shopping together for a little bit until this alleged attack occurred. She said she kept it to herself. She only told a few friends actually, but other than that, kept it to herself um, until she decided to go public just ahead of coming out with a new book. Um, So obviously that caused a bit of a sensation and Trump uh, strongly denied these claims, um, called her and, you know, essentially said that she was a liar said even that she wasn't his type Um, is the way he he put it. Um, And uh, Ms. Carroll believed that uh, she had been defamed by that denial. And in November, uh, um, she filed this defamation lawsuit against the president in state court here in New York.
1: So how far has that suit gotten?
3: It has progressed pretty uh, far for uh, Ms. Carroll. uh, Her case survived a motion to dismiss uh, that the president had filed back in January. Um, The judge rejected. Uh, President Trump's um, argument that the case uh, should be dismissed because he wasn't subject to New York jurisdiction. He tried to argue he lives in Washington now. And he's, you know, of course, he's been said that he's moving to Florida. Um, But the judge rejected that, said there are various steps people actually need to go through to change residency, and that uh, he really hadn't done that. And so uh, the case was allowed to go forward and set on a schedule for discovery or the uh, exchange of um, evidence in the case. Um, so there were uh, some other preliminary rulings as well that uh, Carol uh, came out uh, on top for. So um, the case was now progressing pretty rapidly toward discovery. Um, he, President Trump did make a last minute attempt to put the case on hold, to stay the case. Uh, but that was denied.
1: This suit was filed in 2019. Trump has been represented by his personal attorney, right, Mark Kazowitz?
3: Uh, that's correct. He's had a few lawyers working on the case, and he's been one of them. Um, they uh, have you know filed re- repeated attempts to to stay the case, um, and e- each of them ha- have been rejected pretty forcefully by the courts, but they're clearly had been making every effort to to put the case on hold. And I should say, most recently, they did argue that the case should be put on hold um, uh, because the Supreme Court hadn't resolved the issue of whether or not a president could face a state court action. And that, of course, was the the big landmark case uh, recently involving the Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance and whether or not he could uh, subpoena the president's tax records and financial documents as part of an an investigation. Um, And, of course, uh, the Supreme Court ruled um, that the president did not have the broad immunity from state court actions that he argued he did in that Vance case. And so, um, as a result, uh, Ms. Carroll's lawyer said, uh, hey, there's no reason to keep this case um, on, on hold. Uh, clearly, the Supreme Court has ruled that the sitting president is not immune from state court actions like the one in this court, and uh, that case was, again, it was allowed to proceed toward discovery.
1: So now, what has the Justice Department done to intervene here?
3: Well, that's really the latest uh, big twist in this case, and uh, it didn't, It wasn't expected Um, By anyone, it wasn't expected by um, Carol or or her well-known litigator, lawyer, Roberta Kaplan. Uh, They they just really didn't see this coming. The Justice Department on Tuesday filed um, court papers in federal court in the Southern District of New York to remove the case from state court, um, saying that because the suit is filed against the sitting president, um, the attorney general's office had uh, determined that, uh, the allegations at the center of the, the defamation suit um, were uh, related to President Trump's actions in his official capacity at the time that he denied Carol's claims and allegedly defamed her. And that uh, since this was an official capacity act, the Justice Department, uh, said that it could uh, substitute it, the United States government for Trump as the defendant in the case and move the case uh, to federal court under the Federal Tort Claims Act which essentially shields um, government employees, federal government employees, from being sued in their individual capacity um, in some cases.
1: Eric, it would be sort of a triple whammy for Carol if the judge allows this move because the case would be in federal court instead of state court. The Justice Department, with all its resources, would take over defending the suit, and Trump might not even be liable under the Federal Tort Claims Act.
3: That's right. It would really derail the case pretty significantly. Without Trump as a defendant, it's unlikely that they would be able to get some of the discovery that they seek, although it's not clear how they would. But it's significant, too, because under the Federal Tort Claims Act, defamation is a suit that you can't file against the government. So it's possible that if the case is allowed to proceed in federal court, and there hasn't been any determination from a judge on that. But if it is allowed to proceed, that it, it's likely that a defamation case simply wouldn't even be allowed to proceed, That it could spell the end of the case. It's unclear exactly what the ramifications would be there.
1: Now, Attorney General Barr has already made a comment about this. He said this was a normal application of the law. Tell us a little bit about what his defense for the Justice Department stepping in was was
3: well you know he argues about the the federal tort claims act that uh you know essentially any federal employee is going to get the same type of treatment here um that if they are accused of a particular wrongdoing um that relates to their official duties as a government employee um that the law you know there was amended back in the 80s to protect federal government employees from these types of lawsuits Uh, i I suppose it's an example could be, you know, suing someone at the IRS individually for something that they, uh, did with an audit or something, you know, the, that it's going to be the agency, uh, that is going to be standing in as a defendant in, in cases that are allowed to actually be filed against these agencies. Uh, so, you know, clearly the, the pushback on the Attorney General here, um, is that, um, you know, is this really, was this really in his, uh, the President's official capacity? Making um, this denial um, uh, against Carol's claims and saying the other things that uh, that he said about her um, that she was just trying to profit from her book and and uh, uh, that she was she wasn't his his type and things like this. Um, So it also stands the question whether or not the underlying claims, as you mentioned, this is a defamation suit, but she would be winning or losing this case based on being able able to prove that the the, uh, alleged attack occurred. So it really is about claims. um, The underlying claims here are pretty old and, of course, predate his presidency. So I think there's there's an argument that's going to be made that regardless of the fact that the defamation, the alleged defamation occurred while Trump is president, that uh, it's not his official capacity and that the case should go back to state court.
1: So Carol's lawyer said that this was a shocking abuse of power that she'll fight it. What's the process ahead?
3: Well, you know, I've spoken with her, and it's not exactly clear what her strategy is going to be beyond uh, filing at some point soon a brief that will, I imagine, substantially uh, push back against this argument and try to have the case moved back to state court. And it's possible that the judge in the case could simply say, no, I don't accept this. It's also likely that that decision could be appealed. But at any rate, Ms. Carroll's lawyer is going to try to get this case moved back to state court, where it's on a fast track for discovery that's been stalled for months uh, because of President Trump's uh, various court maneuvers. And, of course, what they're really looking to get here, what Carroll's legal team really wants here, is a DNA sample from the president. They made that clear months ago in court filings in state court that Ms. Carroll has saved the dress and the shoes that she wore during this alleged attack all these years, that they have DNA samples from the item, and they want to compare them to the president's DNA. So that's one thing that they're going to attempt to get. That's what I think the big fight will be over, and also a deposition of the president and other people involved, such as the people that Ms. Carroll told at the time, So they want all this to start moving forward as quickly as possible, Uh, and of course, uh, the president would love to to slow this all down and get it thrown out, especially with the election coming up.
1: So tell us about Judge Lewis Kaplan, the federal judge who is going to be hearing this case.
3: He is the chief judge there at the Southern District of New York. Um, He was appointed to the bench in 1994 by Bill Clinton. He has... Worked on quite a few big cases there in SDNY. Not a not a, a lot of huge political cases, but certainly big cases um, involving terrorists, uh, white collar crime, things like that.
1: Legal experts that you've talked to are they skeptical that the Justice Department will be able to intervene here, and that you know the judge will say that the president was acting in his official capacity when he denied these personal statements?
3: Yeah, there is skepticism here. I think that a lot of people were pretty surprised. President Trump has come up with a lot of sort of novel, surprising legal arguments and all the various cases that he's been involved in over the past several years. So surprising moves like this are not uncommon. But even so, this, this particular one seemed to surprise a lot of people because as much as Attorney General Barr might say otherwise, it does seem to be an unusual use of this law that would protect federal employees from litigation uh going back to the argument the analogy i made earlier with an irs auditor being sued or something like that um you know would the government would the irs want to step in and, and be a defendant for that employee if that employee had been um accused of uh sexual assault and defamation you know it's it's Unclear. I don't. I, I don't know for sure that there hasn't been a case like that. Uh, but but the legal experts seem to be pretty surprised and a bit dubious about it. And I think that the, probably the biggest sign that it's an unusual move is that Miss Carroll's lawyer, uh, Robbie Kaplan, w- was so surprised by it and taken off guard because um, she would have, I'm sure, anticipated um, you know any any move by the president that would have been um, a, a little bit more.
1: And also, if this is the case, then why didn't the Justice Department step in way back when the suit was filed? Why was his personal attorney defending it all this time? It doesn't really make much sense.
3: Well, that's a very good point. Um, I... (laughs) I don't know what to say on that. It, it, well, I don't want to put you in wouldn't. the position
1: of defending the suit. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that it's, it just seems odd. The timing seems odd.
3: Yes, the, the timing is surprising. And, and, of course, Carol's lawyer points out that the timing is a little too convenient, that it's clearly, um, she argues, a delay tactic, a desperate delay tactic to avoid this discovery that they're seeking now that the motion to dismiss has been denied. Um, you know, clearly there are a lot of things on the president's uh, mind right now that he has to deal with. And I'm sure that he doesn't want to deal with this case. But the fact is, is, um, the discovery is, is sounds like it's a pretty simple thing, um, to, to get done. Um, they're not asking for a long deposition. Um, the, uh, DNA, uh, a test is, is just with a swab that takes, you know, a few seconds. Um, probably not nearly as intrusive as a coronavirus test. Uh, so it it really is going to be difficult for um, President Trump to argue that this case uh, is too troublesome for him um, if he tries to make that, that argument again. But uh, it, the, the timing does seem to suggest a very last-ditch effort.
1: So, Eric, it seems like... With this delay now where it's going to be decided in federal court and then perhaps go back to state court, it seems like neither the deposition nor the DNA sample will happen before the November election, no matter what the judge rules.
3: I think you're right. I think that this move has effectively uh, delayed the case, uh, no matter what, pretty significantly. Um, I, I know that when the case was proceeding in state courts, uh, that the schedules that they were sort of looking at and proposing for the depositions and 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 the DNA samples and things like that were pretty uh, it, were pretty far off um, a while ago when they were first um, envisioned. So I guess the only way that it could, it could proceed more quickly is if uh, the judge very quickly throws this out of federal court, and if. Um, an appeal, any kind of appeal goes quickly, and then perhaps the judge in state court might say, Look, this is a delay tactic. I'm not impressed. I'm putting you on an expedited discovery schedule here. But I, I don't know that any of that is very likely. Courts are usually pretty, um, you know, conservative in, in, in things like this, but it might get thrown out quickly, but that doesn't mean an appeal is going to happen quickly and that discovery is going to be ordered quickly because, of course, judges and courts are not going to want to look like they're trying to. Um, hurt Trump and uh, his reelection with any kind of timing here.
1: One thing we have not mentioned is that taxpayers would be on the hook for any damages if the Justice Department represents Trump under the Federal Tort Claims Act. Explain, explain that.
3: Yeah, and of course, they'd also be taxpayers would also be on the hook here for the legal fees, essentially, because we'd have Justice Department attorneys uh, defending. Uh, the president here. So I'm not sure if there are particular limits or restrictions on damages um, as a result of cases like this being moved to federal court. There there may be. And frankly, I don't see that uh, Ms. Carroll is focused too much um, on damages here. Uh, She really seems to be wanting her, her day in court to get to trial and essentially prevail.
1: Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Eric Larson. Previously on In the Dark. John Johnson, all I want is a conviction, and he said I'm going to play no Texas and get him. He showed me Curtis Flowers' picture. Do you remember like telling them like that Curtis wore feelers No, I, I, did not say that. I don't know anybody no shoes,
2: no murder, no nitty
1: So, are you confident that you have the right person that Curtis Flowers is guilty? That I will answer definitely. Curtis Flowers was tried six times for the same crime, a quadruple murder in Mississippi in 1996. Flowers, a black man, maintained his innocence for 22 years as mostly white juries hung twice and convicted him four times, but those convictions were reversed on appeal, the latest reversal from the Supreme Court in 2019. And last week, the prosecutor decided not to try Flowers for an unprecedented seventh time. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. Jordan, what stood out in Flowers' six trials?
2: Well, the main thing that was pointed out in the Supreme Court's eventual decision in Curtis Flowers' favor is that there was a pattern by the local district attorney, Doug Evans, of trying to keep prospective black jurors off of the jury. So that was a pattern that had emerged over the years in all of those trials.
1: So after two decades, the prosecutor decided to drop the charges against Flowers. Was it because of the Supreme Court
2: decision? I think it certainly was. And now it's important to note that after the Supreme Court's decision last year, the case was remanded back to that same district attorney, Doug Evans, and the prospect of a seventh trial loomed even then because all the Supreme Court's decision did was really put the indictment back live as it were, and with Curtis Flowers facing another potential trial. But what happened was uh, Doug Evans actually recused from the case, and then it went to the new state attorney general, Lynn Fitch, whose office undertook an independent review of the case, after which Fitch's office decided to move to dismiss the indictment, and that was that.
1: So why did Fitch think that the case shouldn't be tried again?
2: Well, one of the things that the attorney general pointed out in the motion was that at least at this point in time, uh, there's no what they refer to as any key prosecution witness that incriminates Flowers who's alive and available and hasn't had multiple conflicting statements in the record. So it wasn't so much a direct exoneration of Flowers, who I should point out has maintained his innocence throughout this process. But in some respects, it was put more in terms of We just don't have enough evidence to go forward. Although the attorney general's motion concluded by using the phrase, quote, in the interest of justice, end quote, that's why they weren't seeking an unprecedented seventh trial of Mr. Flowers, as they put it.
1: During the six trials, juries were either hung or Flowers was convicted.
2: That's right. So it really was over the course of two decades, a series of remarkable numbers of trials, really an unprecedented situation, and really just notable how there was continued what's essentially been found to have been misconduct by the prosecutor in the case, most notably in terms of racial discrimination in the jury process.
1: Jordan, explain that concept of racial discrimination in
2: choosing jurors. Sure. So... Lawyers can't discriminate against potential jurors based on race and now that doesn't mean that there aren't racial disparities in juries that wind up being essentially legally okay by courts because sometimes what can happen is a prosecutor say if they're challenged and accused of being racially discriminatory in how they choose jurors, they can offer what's called a race-neutral reason for doing so. Uh, However, essentially what happened in the Supreme Court case is that the justices took a look at this pattern of Evans over the years and said that whatever reasons were given, those really just aren't good enough, and this was too racially discriminatory to bear under the Constitution.
1: How much of this dismissal might be the result of the national attention flowers got from the apm reports podcast in the dark
2: oh i think that that was huge and it's really a testament to the investigatory journalism in that apm reports podcast because that's really what put the case on the map of course you know you never know what will happen in a counterfactual scenario but i'm pretty confident in saying that that's a big reason for why flowers is not on death row
1: so finally did that podcast attempt to exonerate flowers
2: Um, that's a good question. You know, I I think that that is a fair way to look at it. And going back to something that I mentioned before, that they also even went so far as to identify a potential alternate suspect. And so really, I think all of those things taken together are something that people look at as pointing to why they've amassed proof of flowers, innocence, and going to the point of it's not just important to make sure, obviously, that an innocent person is not convicted, but also uh, in a very serious crime, which this was a a quadruple homicide, you know, you need to be able to bring the the right person to justice as well. So the podcast certainly sought to do that.
1: Thanks, Jordan. That's Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio.